0: AI today is the worst that it will ever be in human history. I believe we're entering an era where the vast majority of the human race will not need to work in order for society to function. You're going to either work with AI, you're going to work for AI, or you're not going to have a job.
1: Welcome back to the Product Market Fit Podcast, a show for early stage founders and operators who are looking to level up their startup growth. I'm your host, Moshe Poltrak, and my guest today is Ben Parr, journalist, investor, and co founder of Octane AI. Ben has been at the forefront of AI technology for nearly a decade and shares several interesting perspectives and predictions regarding how AI is going to change the world. If you are in the area of e commerce or interested in AI at all, you'll enjoy this conversation as we cover the importance of zero party data, measuring NRR or net revenue retention, and his takeaways from last month's TED AI event in San Francisco. And stay to the end for Ben's tactical advice on getting PR for your startup. The Product Market Fit Podcast is brought to you by Growth.co. That's growth without the O Growth offers fractional CMOs paired with best-in-class digital marketing execution to support early-stage startup success. With a focus on seed and Series A companies, Growth has helped a number of SaaS, digital health, and e-commerce startups build their go-to-market function and scale up. To learn more and book a free consultation, go to growth.co. That's G-R-W-T-H C-O. Now here's Ben Parr, co-founder and president of Octane AI. Hello, Ben. I am thrilled to talk with you today. Welcome to the show.
0: Thank you for having me. I am here and I am an actual human and not an AI. And now you will question that every time you have a conversation with me for the rest of the podcast.
1: I have thought about doing a AI chat with a bot on this podcast. I have not done it yet. So all listeners out there, all of the episodes so far have been with a real life human, but you've been doing AI since way back before it was cool and hype. So how did you get into the space?
0: So got in because my co-founder, Matt Schlitz, who is fantastic for anyone who has ever met him. He was product lead at Ustream at like 19. He was a Y Combinator alum in the same class as Brian Armstrong of Coinbase and Apoorva from Instacart. And in 2015, and he's been on a trend for a decade and a half, two decades maybe at this point, in 2015, he and his then fiancé at the time went to China and they saw that everything was being done via mobile. WeChat is the dominant way of conversation. And it became clear to both of us that over time, more and more of the way we interact with the world would be through conversation and not through the standard interfaces. And the thing you need for those conversational interfaces is you need AI to properly have the back and forth. We thought this was how more brands would communicate. We thought that it would come over to the U S chatbots. There was a early wave in 2016 and that's when we started our company. And we started building some of this AI stuff, but it was. Really, really bad tech at the beginning, to be honest. The tech was nowhere near as good as it is now. We had to piece together mediocre NLP stuff and our own backend stuff to do anything with AI. But we were really interested early. In fact, I looked at the first deck we ever made, the deck that General Catalyst invested in Octane AI with, and the last slide on it says, our mission is to democratize AI for everyone, which I feel is what has actually happened this year. And it was a combination of open AI and the world's group of developers and a lot of other things. But now there's a whole new era and a whole new movement that feels akin to me like the early internet days or the early mobile days. This whole new class of businesses where that are going to be built on top of this AI infrastructure and are going to build the new AI infrastructure that we use for the rest of our lives.
1: Absolutely. I have long held a belief that chat and Specifically, chat as a, with a voice medium would be the next interface as how we interact with technology, with information. And that's you know all the more obvious today after ChatGPT became the fastest growing product of all time and all the other applications that are built on top of that. So let's talk about Octane AI, the startup that you founded. It has its initial history in the chatbot space. You guys pivoted to become an e-commerce app built on top of Shopify or in the Shopify ecosystem. What is Octane AI and who do you serve?
0: So, Octane AI is AI for the world of e-commerce, as you said. So, and it started out as chatbots for celebrities, as you also pointed out, which great for press, horrible for making money. But I can tell you lots of stories about Rick Ross, Jason Derulo, Kiss, and Aerosmith, and Lindsay Lohan. I got stories about all of them. But what we do now is we power. AI tools and AI product recommendations and quizzes for thousands of e-commerce brands. So if you're a Shopify brand, there's probably a good chance you've heard of Octane AI. If you go to a site like a Kizik or a Jones Road Beauty or most of the major Shopify powered brands, they use their software to build quizzes that help automatically recommend products. Think of it kind of like if you had the in-store associate and you put it on the website, that's kind of what we do. And it uses AI to help you build those quizzes. It uses AI to help actually make the product recommendations. And then we have a new set of AI tools that we've been coming out with to help you really understand your customers, analyze your tens or thousands or hundreds of thousands of reviews to really understand what your customers are looking for, what ads you should run, all sorts of things like that. And we're going to be building more super cool stuff over the coming months to provide a full AI suite to our customers.
1: Very cool. And one of the few profitable AI startups that I've come across.
0: (laughs) It's, there's not a lot of them out there to be sure.
1: No. So congratulations on that. Can you drill in a little bit more on the concept of zero party data? I've heard you talk about that and write about the value of that in the kind of post cookie post, you know, iOS 14 world. How do you power that? Why is that meaningful for retailers and for website property owners in general?
0: So. This kind of really started happening after Apple came out with iOS 14.5. They came out with the future where you could opt out of data tracking, which is great for the consumer, but lots of ad platforms really relied on that data for their ad targeting. This really hurt Facebook for a long time, still does. And so there's kind of like different sets of data. Like third-party data is the data that like from aggregators and other sources, you don't have any control over that. First-party data is data that... You're tracking user behavior, like Google Analytics is first-party data, you know, heat maps of your website are first-party data. But the holy grail is zero-party data and zero-party data is data that you directly get from your customers that they volunteer to you. So our quizzes, the e-commerce brand to give you even more specific. JoJo Beauty will ask questions like, what kind of skin do you have? What kind of routines are you looking for? What kind of issues are you trying to solve? Do you put on your moisturizer in the day or the night or both? And directly answering these questions is zero-party data. They are telling you literally what they're looking for, what they want to do. And that data is incredibly valuable from a product recommendation standpoint, from a personalization standpoint, because the consumer really expects deep personalization now of the products that you recommend to them, of the routines that they're looking for. And if you can't deliver on that, they're going to go to the competitors. And you need this data to power better email, better SMS, better ads. And so our entire software suite is built around helping our customers collect the zero-party data to better understand their customers. And it's not even just the personalization aspect. We have customers who are using this data to make decisions about what products to develop next, what lines to start or stop, what things their customers are actually concerned about. We had one customer where they didn't realize that They thought that most of their customers, they were like a fake eyelash company. They thought most of their customers were like experts at eyelash. They found out most of them were novices through their quiz. They actually changed up their entire strategy with their email and their marketing, and that worked out really well for them. That's the kind of thing that zero-party data can do for you.
1: Fantastic. What about as it powers AI? You know, There's a lot of talk about where the value is going to be accrued in AI, foundational models, et cetera. Proprietary data feels like the holy grail. If you're Cora, Quora, you have all that data that nobody else has, right, and lots of other examples. The zero-party data that you're talking about collecting on behalf of the retailers, how does that feed into an AI strategy for a brand or for a property owner?
0: So I'll give you a specific example. Reviews are also zero-party data. that's directly volunteer data. You put it on your website. But if you have like 10,000 reviews, you don't actually know what the day-to-day trends are, 100,000. What Things should you be writing for blog posts based off of all the reviews? What are even the things people are complaining about the most or the least in all of your reviews? So, we built a product called Insights at Octane AI. You connect your review platform, your Yapo or your Okendo, whatever it is, and it takes the reviews and it analyzes all of them. And then you can get a 5,000 foot view of what's happening with your business, what people are saying. And then you can ask specific questions if you want to, like, help me write up five ads and pick out the five best quotes from all the reviews that I can go and use. The end result is really, really incredible ads or really, really incredible insights that you wouldn't get anywhere else because it would take an individual person hours, days, weeks to review that many reviews manually, and they're not going to remember all that data. This is what AI is built for. And so that's like an example of where having that zero-party data set, allows you to make really, really informed decisions if you have that data. There's going to only be more and more useful AI applications that are leveraging the data that you have. But if you have not collected any zero-party data, then you can't do any of the AI stuff that your competitors are going to be doing. So start collecting zero-party data today, not even just in e-commerce, just in general. Zero-party data is always going to be useful. You're always going to be able to leverage it. AI is is the newest way to go and leverage it. And we're starting to give our customers a way to do it. And it's just the beginning of lots of ways to leverage this data. Because AI, as I think everyone knows, relies on the data set that you have. The more data you have, the better. The more fidelity of the data you have, the better. Nothing is higher fidelity than zero-party data.
1: Fascinating. Let's go back in time a bit. We talked a little bit about your pivot from chatbots to e-commerce tool, e-commerce plugin, whatever you want to call it, the moment that you found product market fit in the V2 of Octane, what data points or signals did you see that said, yes, we're onto something here? How did you know you had product market fit in those early days? And how do you think about it today as maintaining product market fit or continuously striving towards it? Because it's not a one-time thing,
0: right? God, product market fit is, it, I love that there was a podcast just about this because It is such a mystical thing that I cannot even tell you I have ever fully solved. No one has ever fully solved. So like in the early past, I thought we had product market fit because people would be signing up. But product market fit is super clear when people are just coming to you and it's because your customers are recommending you to other customers and they're just coming to you. And you have to have the signal of your product is really, really incredible. And it's bringing more people in and it's its own engine. The feeling... A product market fit can be a feeling of especially in the beginning of like overwhelmed of wow there's a lot of inbound coming in if you're not feeling that most of the time when you think you have product market fit you don't have product market fit or you're not quite there yet it takes lots of data and lots of time so there's kind of like two pieces there's the cycle where your customers are recommending you to other customers and more businesses coming in than maybe you can handle or that is just automatic almost right then you know that if you poured the gas and you like did outbound and you did other things, you're going to increase the revenue. But that first core engine has to work. The other one is like, are they sticky? Do they stay? We talk a lot about net dollar retention and we talk a lot about these metrics that I think are really critically important. If you're a founder and you don't know what net dollar retention is, you have a whole rabbit hole to go down right now because when you go to series A, series B... Even seed these days, sometimes, the cohort data really matters. I can look now, and when I put my investor hat on, I can look at cohort data and I can tell you exactly what's happening with their business and are the metrics going up, are the metrics going down, are people dropping off at month three, are people not dropping off at all. For everyone out there, your goal is to have it so that when you have a group of customers who started a year ago, pretend that 100 customers started a year ago. You want to have that group of 100 customers, even if a few dropped off, because a few will drop off. You want them as a group paying you more money than they did a year ago. That's really critical to product market fit as well. Are they paying you more? Have you built a system where they will pay you more for more things? This is how companies like Snowflake got so big because they had incredible net dollar retention. Their customers would spend millions of dollars more every year to expand their work and their product. So those are the two things I think a lot about both like Is the inbound just kind of happening because customers are talking to other customers? And does the retention come to a point where people are paying you more after a year and like they're not dropping like flies? So that's how I think about product market fit at a high level.
1: I like the emphasis on net dollar retention. And just to reiterate, it basically just means that for every lost dollar because of churn, you're making that up and more if you have a positive NRR you're making it up with revenue expansion, whether that's upsell or whatever way you're able to increase the value of those customers.
0: Look, this is one other thing where in some ecosystems and lots of ecosystems now, one key way to do that is you eventually do come out with new products that are really directly related to your core product, right? There's lots of things that are really related to email. Klaviyo is a great example. One of our core partners, they just IPO'd, they added SMS as a product after perfecting their email product. And that made total sense. They're similar marketing channels. They can work together and they're adding other tools to their stack. And those that makes sense. And that helps increase their net dollar retention. In addition to the pure fact that the more successful you are with Klaviyo, the more emails you add, the more revenue you make. Same kind of thing with us. Like the more successful you are with our product, the more money you're making, the more money we make. That's how our pricing works.
1: Sure. And it is usually talked about in terms of subscription revenue businesses or any business that has a predictable repeatability to it but the same concept although it's not nrr relates to you know even an e-commerce business where you're looking at maximizing lifetime value right so it's not a subscription business but you are looking at repeat purchasing behavior and i'm sure that's part of kind of what you guys are offering in that in that space any other thoughts as to how ai is affecting e-commerce and retail specifically what trends are you seeing there <laughs>
0: It's doing the same thing as doing it in every industry. Every industry is starting to figure out what to do with AI. It's the beginning stages. You know, e-commerce in particular, uh, AI has, I think, a more pronounced effect than some other verticals in the beginning because the visuals and the copy really matter in-, in e-commerce. And now you have amazing tools that can create copy instantly on the fly. That is really effective and at large scale. And you have tools that can create an update and create images. I've seen no less than 20 product photography decks for like AI for product photography. And like, there's a reason for that because there is real usefulness to that. Makes it hard to back one because there's so many of them, but really useful for a lot of e-commerce brands. And so I see more e-commerce brands embracing different aspects of AI. The hard part for everyone is getting into a habit of using the AI on a daily basis, which is what you have to really do to really leverage AI for its maximum potential. But in e-commerce, yeah, everything. More on customer support. I'm seeing cool tools on that front. I'm seeing more in terms of data analysis. We're gonna have some cool stuff coming out as since we've been here on AI for a decade. Any process where there's a lot of data or you have something that feels repetitive or something that's visual, there's always a way to leverage AI to improve your business. And e-commerce has all of those, but it's not just e-commerce as I think for everyone listening, it's a lot of things.
1: Yeah. I don't think that there's going to be an area of the economy that won't be touched by AI directly or indirectly. One of the hurdles to adoption for AI products, whether they're chatbots or other interface, is a trust factor. There seems to be, you know, you joked earlier about this episode being talking to an AI (laughs) bot, potentially. I came across the other day, I was searching for a topic and there was a video that was AI voiced on this topic. And my initial reaction was, A, I'm assuming that the content was also generated by AI, not just the the avatar, and B, can I trust it? What's the provenance of this content? How do we bridge that gap of trust when it comes to an AI assistant, when it comes to a chat bot? We know the issues of hallucination and, and other uh, issues that AI has. When do we get to the point where consumers have trust in AI as they would with, with an expert or a human assistant?
0: One, I think most a lot of people already have a lot of trust in AI more than people realize. So I just did a speech at my alma mater, uh, Northwestern, in Chicago. And I asked a large group of students, two groups of students actually, to raise their hand if uh, they used ChatGPT on a daily basis. And all but one raised their hand. It is already a core part of the student experience. And when they go into the workplace, it'll be a core part of the workplace experience. This is always where I look when I'm trying to decide if something is a long-term trend or not, because you did not have every student using crypto. And so that was not gonna be a mainstream thing for a lot of people. Sorry to, for all the crypto people out there, but AI, mobile, you see, Snapchat. I can always tell with that data set, like is something gonna be sticky and long-term and usage of AI and trust in AI actually is already long-term. I always try to remind people that humans make lots and lots of mistakes and are error-prone. And the question shouldn't be like, how do you make hallucinations down to zero? Because it won't be. Google Search is riddled with errors, actually, too. Can you get it to the level where it is about as correct as a human is going to be, if not more correct? And we're, frankly, already there. You could generally trust that an answer from a chat GPT is going to probably be correct. And you could double-check it with something. And that would be what you would do with a human if you like most of the time. But even if you account for hallucinations, it's as smarter, smarter than a human in terms of like the responses. So I always remind people that this thing is really useful. This thing is very helpful. So they already trust it to help them do a lot of things. And that will grow over time as they get more comfortable. I always remind people that AI today is the worst that it will ever be in human history. This is something my co-founder likes to remind me too. It is the worst it will ever be in human history today. And it's already so incredible. Like we did not have a chat GPT about a year ago. And now we have just incredible tools that can automate so much of your life and give you answers on the fly if you're just using them daily. So the trust is gonna just naturally increase. The area where like there's gonna be duping and things like that where I'm thinking a lot about where the AI voice stuff is so good, for example. You could not tell, in some cases, it's human or not a human. And again, it's only going to get better. So what do we do at that point? That is an open question. And so the more of the trust is like, is this human or is this AI? And I definitely advocate for people to adapt. For example, have a safe word with your partner or with your parents to confirm like, they are human and it's not some kind of random AI. I've already heard a story of someone who called the person's grandmother, and it sounded like them, but it was actually AI. It's already starting to happen. Yeah.
1: Yeah. With regards to your first point, we as humans tend to have a higher bar for technology than we do for humans, as is evidenced time and again. Just recently, the uh, self-driving cars were banned in California, even though they're significantly safer than human drivers, but they're not 0.000 flawless, right? I think that's a psychology thing rather than a parody thing.
0: Oh, yeah, for sure. And look, I get why California did that. I hope that we get some of the self-driving back because, again, I would make any bet that humans will cause a lot more accidents and deaths than a machine will, just purely from the matter of fact of a self-driving car does not need to sleep, can react automatically, does not get angry. That's where the future should be and will be. It's just the psychology. It takes time for people to adapt to these things and to build up trust and all that sort of thing. But eventually you realize this technology is more useful than the thing in the past. The next generation will probably drive a lot less and be more receptive to cars. It could take a generation, but that's what will happen. Yeah.
1: I love that reminder that you shared with regards to the way that it is today is the worst that it'll ever be. It's a really good perspective. You recently came back from TED AI in San Francisco, I really wanted to go, and unfortunately I got sick and had to cancel, but share with us some of the perspectives that were being disseminated in that room, the conversations that you had with attendees as well as some of the speakers. What's the general feeling right now of practitioners in the space as it relates to how far we've come in the last year? Where are we going next specifically with AI agents? And kind of longer term as it relates to trends towards super or AGI? I know that was a, a loaded question, but if you want to pick it apart any way you those want. Were,
0: those, you did research, those are two topics that came up a lot. So for those who don't know, an autonomous agent is an AI that can self-prompt itself to complete a goal. So you give it a goal like build this app with these features or win at Minecraft, which is a real AI and it does a very good job of it and it's an autonomous agent, or plan a party. Or become friends with the other AIs, and then it you sell gives its own prompts to help get to the goal. And they're like at the very beginning stages right now, but we're they're getting better and better. One of them, Stanford researcher, was on stage at TED AI Day one talking about the research that they did, and the AI started planning parties for each other. It was a whole universe to itself. Now, to be clear, they're not intelligent. I could go for like twenty minutes into why AI is nowhere near intelligent right now, and it is just great predictive machines. But that's enough to feel human and to have them decide they want to plan a Valentine's Day party for themselves or to do things like that. And so there was a lot of talk about the autonomous agents in the movement. The founder of Baby A.G.I. Yohei, good friend, was there as well, talking about like that future. There was definitely some people where they're trying to grasp the idea of if you go down the logical, one logical path, you might come to the conclusion that AI will eventually be smarter than us and will eat us alive. And most people are saying, I don't believe that'll happen, but they didn't have a reason for that. They didn't actually sound as hopeful as I would want to be. I have the opinion that we're nowhere near an AI having that kind of intelligence. We don't even understand how human consciousness works, why would we suddenly be able to put it into a machine? So I'm not that worried about those things and we saw AIs at TED AI. There's a lot of medical stuff, for example, at TED AI. AIs that could diagnose cancers almost immediately, get down to the cellular level, really understand human biology. I think that's one of the biggest promises of AI today, even outside of the generative AI stuff. And in including the generative AI stuff. If we pursue some of the AI research Uh, in medical technologies, everyone listening to this now might live another 10 or 20 or 100 years. And that's not hyperbole. It's real. The human body is just a giant amount of data. There's so much data, so many individual cells. Now we have the tools to actually analyze all the data from all the individual cells. Then you could come up with new treatments and new solutions and things that we never thought of before one last thing because there's a hundred things that came up in the conversations a lot of talk about a single point of failure for ai and in particular there's one speech about tsmc which i have followed pretty closely which for those who don't know is the taiwan semiconductor company that makes all the world's top semiconductors every nvidia chip that you care about that open ai uses almost certainly leverages a semiconductor from tsmc and it's in Taiwan, a place with some geopolitical issues and instability issues. And if there were to be a war, you would have lots of other complications that would come up as a result of that. That could pause AI for a number of years. This is why the U.S. passed the Chips Act. That's why they're trying to build more chips stateside. But everyone is three years behind whatever TSMC is doing. And that's a real concern for the AI community. i not as concerned just because it is in... Then we can get to the geopolitics, why I'm not as concerned, but I will say I'm not as concerned about that, but it's a real thing. We need to have more places that are building more of these semiconductors because it's as rare and as important a resource as gold or conductors or rare earth metals or pick your valuable resource or oil or whatever it is. So some of the cool stuff from today, I really smart people, people all across, both top engineers from a lot of the top companies and just tech plus people who were executives at major firms trying to figure out like what's gonna happen next in AI. It was a fun time. Good job, Chris Anderson and crew on a great event.
1: Really interesting stuff. What predictions do you care to share on the future of work, the future of identity, and the future of society as AI disrupts every area of our lives?
0: I've had this prediction since 2017. I had a speech I did at one of the conferences for the Atlantic, and I'm gonna modify it maybe a hair which is, I believe we're entering an era where the vast majority of the human race will not need to work in order for society to function. I think that's still true long-term, but there are a couple ways that that could play out. I know, I think the CEO of JP Morgan proposed that he thinks that instead of a lot of people not having jobs, they might end up at a four day work week or a three and a half day work week because you don't have to have the same output with AI helping automate lots of other things. And that might actually be a way things go, We're entering an era where it's not that P companies are laying off everybody, but for certain things, you don't need as many people. You may need half the amount of people. And over time, we're gonna get better with these AI tools and you'll need less people or you'll need to work less. How that shakes out in the rest of the economy, I'm not sure. And of course, you know, AI is not, people don't wanna have an AI greet them at their hotel. And that might mean there's more service economy kind of jobs, which could be a good thing, could be a bad thing depending on the way you view things. And so I expect larger change over time with how the economy works as AI becomes more prolific. I expect to find brand new innovations in things like healthcare, climate, areas that are gonna profoundly impact our lives. I think we don't think a lot or even enough about the second order impacts of great AI being applied to really hard problems in other industries and verticals that are going to change our lives. You're going to see better and better AI tools and usage. You're going to see students go into the workplace, leveraging AI. And I think this is one thing my co-founder tweeted once, which is you're going to either work with AI, you're going to work for AI, or you're not going to have a job and it's going to definitely be true. There's going to be AI bosses. There's going to be AI managers, there's going to be AI everything. It doesn't replace everyone, but you might need to, you could code four times the amount that you did before or write six times the amount. So it changes a lot of things when you do that. It takes a couple of years for those kind of changes to permeate through the system. I would just recommend to everyone keeping on top of AI. Get into the habit of using AI on a daily basis. Like like go to ChatGPT and ask a question. I always have a tab open with ChatGPT, I have one right here to like help me answer questions.
1: Yeah, we're definitely entering into an age of abundance, and I'm excited about that. But I think that as it relates to individual identity. We find purpose today, a significant amount of our purpose is found in work and a future where work isn't necessary because of resource abundance. It could be everybody becomes philosophers and artists, or it could be like the Wally scenario or what Mark Andreessen calls the meth and Cheetos scenario, right? Where you put your VR goggles on and you take your mind-altering drugs and then your snacks and, and that, that's how you fill your days.
0: I I actually kind of am certainly more like maybe it's a three-day, the four-day kind of work week where you don't have to work the same amount.
1: But that's a temporary bridge, right?
0: We don't know because you still need someone to check the work of the AIs or manage it. We haven't hit the point yet where I always tell people it's not a replace or not replace. It's a supplement to people, which makes it more efficient. A team's going to still need people in marketing, but they just might need half the amount of people. And so... The result of that might be more people spread out in more startups. It might be that people work, companies have a competitive advantage if they're offering less hours. We don't exactly know the way it goes. I think there's more consensus around the general trend. It's more like, how do we as a society play it out? The biggest issue we have right now is that we have no backup plan. Society is one of my columns in the information. There's no backup plan. What do we do if we do hit that point where there are a lot of people who don't need jobs at all? I don't think people want to do things and be productive. I mean, of course, I guess if you made enough money, maybe you would want to live on a beach every day. There's a lot of people who wouldn't want to just be on a beach every day. They would want to go and do some other things so and apply brain power. So, uh, that's all I say, none of us really know it's all a little bit of speculation, I think we can see the trend lines. We have a lot of control as a society over the trend lines that we want to have. And that's the kind of discussion that we should be having with each other, with the government, with our our leaders should be having, that I'm having with leaders in government and leaders in policy and leaders in AI. And that conversation will continue over the next couple of years and needs to grow.
1: Yeah. You made a prediction previously that we will see a billion-dollar startup of three people because of the ability to leverage AI. When do you think that'll happen?
0: I would be shocked. It might've already happened and we just don't know. Look, we're already at a point where there's billion dollar companies. It's not that big of a leap when you think about it. There was a billion dollar company that had about 11 to 14 people. Its name was Instagram when it got acquired by Facebook. That was over a decade ago. You could build a giant company with a small amount of people. And like MidJourney has like 50 people, maybe it has a hair more now. But if you were to value it, it'd be worth billions. It doesn't ever raise money from any investors. It never will because the founder is a pirate in the best sense. I know him. But I already expect that a company that is going to be worth a billion dollars and only has three people or five people has already been started or already exists. What are the two? Someone's going to be like, yeah, our company has four people, and it's worth a, it's just got a billion-dollar valuation. I wouldn't be shocked if I heard it this year or next year. It's sooner rather than later, and it might already exist, and they're just not telling anyone because they're printing money. It's a couple of people. Why tell anyone else?
1: Yep. Fascinating times. Let's shift gears for a bit. You were uh, editor-at-large and co-editor at Mashable. Uh, from the perspective of an editor, any advice for startup founders as to how they should approach PR as a channel, how to help their startups with press with um, publicity.
0: Yeah, and this is one reason founders like to have as an investor. But there's a so press and PR has changed than my days, and I think that's important to note. So like in my early days as the editor of Mashable, you know there was more coverage of individual startups and more positivity, which you know now we're seeing like the pros and cons of technology. My advice, so like, press can really put a company on the map and can be a real validator. Do not expect press to suddenly drive you to a hundred thousand customers and like make or break you. It will not do that. But when a customer is evaluating you and they see that article in Bloomberg or TechCrunch or the New York Times or the Verge or whatever publication, it will provide them even more comfort. Being like, okay, this is legitimate. This is like a company with like r- something real happening. You, like, I recommend building relationships with some journalists. I recommend really understanding who is writing about your space. I always tell founders, like, you you can't pitch, hey, I'm a company and I exist. That's not a story. There has to be an event, like, you just raised a a round from, you know, General Catalyst or Andreessen Horowitz, or you just hired this amazing person that has uh, recognition, I recommend to founders to kind of put yourself in the mind of the journalist, their job is to write stories that will have large interest from their from their audience, right? And so, random startup you never heard of is not a story. Startup that you like is solving crazy problem and has backers that you have heard of, like Mark Cuban or whatever it is, is a story. And so, or is more likely to be a story. And so, you have to like think what that story is. And I can get to the nitty gritty, but like. Oh founders lo- like love to write long emails about like their company when they send a pitch. A journalist is just like a VC where they get pitched a thousand times, a hundred thousand times. Your email needs to be very short and pithy to the point. Ideally an introduction. Like this is who we are, this is what we're doing in the simplest terms. This is the story. These are like the like key names and validators that are like gonna be interesting to you. We raise around from X and Y. We'd love to offer you the exclusive. Exclusives also, especially for an earlier stage company. Are better to go with like there's two like you could go with an embargo which is like when you get a group of journalists to try to write a story at the same time but you have to be a big company or you have to have tons of press experience to pull those off they used to be more common in the, like 2010 2011 they're very uncommon now go with exclusive with a uh, publication and then i've seen companies put ads behind those articles and be very successful with that as well. So there's a bunch of little random masterclass stuff, but uh, get to know the journalists, get to know who is writing in that space. Don't pitch people randomly. Don't write giant long emails. Make sure it's an actual story. Have validators like investors or, uh, you know, name, like and always put your mind in the mind of the journalist and like what they need to have for it to be a story.
1: Yeah, great advice. Press release or no press release in that scenario?
0: Press release does not matter. It doesn't actually change anything. It might give you some SEO stuff. It might make it feel more official. Press release is not going to really get you another really big article from anybody. Uh, There's like a size where you want to have something like that. You can just write a blog post. Just write a blog post on your website if you're an early stage company. You know, Here's the blog post of the thing. Get an exclusive. You set a time with the reporter if they're interested. You show them the blog post before so that they can do that. They interview you. They quote you. The press release just doesn't really matter. There can absolutely be scenarios when you're bigger where like you want to have the SEO thing, but it doesn't mean that you're going to get an additional story.
1: Got it. Great advice. Um, I know we're running out of time here. We'd like to close out with a lightning round, so we'll jump right into that. All right. What's one book, newsletter, and or podcast that you find yourself recommending most often?
0: I I always recommend like books to help you think about psychology. So God, I have a lot of things thinking fast and slow on the AI side. I really like no priors from the founder conviction cap of ventures. And I think they do great interviews with great AI founders. So that's an AI one. I actually have a cheat sheet of my some of my favorite AI newsletters. It's at benpar.com, which is where my newsletter is the AI analyst on the very top, you'll find the cheat sheet. So I will do also a cheat where like, if you want to have the newsletters that are going to be like great for AI, go there, download the cheat sheet. You'll see a bunch of newsletters that I recommend, like five or six on AI.
1: I love that sneaky plug for your own newsletter, which is fantastic. We're going to put a link to that in the show notes and <laughs> definitely encourage people to subscribe to that as well. You travel more than I think anybody that I know. What tips do you have for folks that
0: need to travel a lot for business? I really like having routine. I do very specific things. I always change my clocks as soon as I get on the plane for whatever time zone I'm going to so that I can self-adjust almost automatically for that. Pack light, not heavy. Don't have a checked bag unless it's vacation. Don't have a checked bag. Do not have that additional stress. You just have to remove the stressors. I have lounges for access. I have an Amex Platinum. Look, I'm the crazy traveler, though, where... I will literally get to the airport 10 minutes before boarding, and it works every time. I have memorized exactly how much time it takes to get from San Francisco to SFO and how long it takes to go from my home base in Culver City to LAX, and I can tell you exactly how much time it is. And so I reduce the amount of time I have to be at an airport, and that's part of my system.
1: I'm kind of similar like that. I used to have a lounge membership at United, but I never came to the airport early enough to take advantage of it. I would just walk right to my gate.
0: There's times where like, I have a couple hours and I need to do work, sit down, get food. Sometimes I'll have an hour or two after I land and then I have my set of meetings, so I'll go and do that. It just reduces stress. In general, find little things that are causing you stress and there are ways to always to reduce it.
1: Yeah, that advice of try to reduce stress, I think it's, it's universal in any scenario, not just traveling. You mentioned earlier, the first iteration of Octane was a celebrity chat app. Any stories that you'd like to share about Lindsay Lohan or Jason Derulo or <laughs> anybody
0: else? <laughs> so I remember one time I just left South by Southwest. We did a photo shoot for the New York Times, flew. I did a speech in Vancouver for the Vancouver government on entrepreneurship. I got a phone call from a friend who was dating Rick or Ross at the time. She was like, hey, Ben, uh, Rick Ross wants the bots. Can you come? to Austin, he's gonna perform at South by Southwest. And I'm like, yes, I could come. So I flew the next day, got to Austin. I hopped in an Uber. I went straight to Rick Ross Hotel. He's like on the top of the Omni. I met up with his girlfriend, his manager, and sitting in there, and maybe five minutes out, Rick Ross is just like in the undershirt and just comes out on FaceTime and he's like, yo, Ben, tell Colin about the bots. And so like I have on FaceTime DJ Khaled and I'm explaining to him and to Rick Ross about chatbots and he's like, dope, I want one. And I will not forget randomly telling DJ Khaled about chatbots on FaceTime in the middle of a hotel in Austin that I had just flown into. So fun times, lovely people, lovely, amazing, smart people and team. But yeah, that was crazy.
1: Amazing. What's one thing that you'd like to change about the startup world or the VC startup world?
0: I wish there were a middle thing where not every business needs to be a multi-billion dollar business. And if you're going to raise venture capital, it's because you firmly believe it's a multi-billion dollar business and it requires capital to scale up. Again, different than the pre-seed and seed in some ways, because you don't have to be a $100 billion company to make returns for your investors. But if you're raising ever beyond that, and even if you're raising seed, you got to think about that. I wish there were a thing where you're going to build a $100 million company or a $300 million company or a $50 million company. There was capital built specifically for that so that you could build a great business that became profitable pretty quickly, but you needed some capital to get started. But the expectation is not that you're going to become a multi-billion dollar business. And you could do that maybe with some angel checks, but people are writing angel checks because they want to have that larger return because it's high risk, high reward. So I wish there was something in the middle like that.
1: Yeah, not every startup needs to be a VC unicorn to be successful, totally agree there.
0: If you build a hundred billion dollar company and you barely raise capital and that's what it is, that's an incredible business, that's a huge congratulations, that's an epic life.
1: And that's probably a more profitable exit for you as a founder than if you had diluted multiple times and raised money.
0: And I will remind every founder out there, the goal is not to raise money. The goal is to build a profitable, sustainable, growing business that serves a target customer. I have seen founders who like raise money and then they suddenly are just not paying attention to their business in the same way. And they're spending a ton more of their money, which you should not do. Just because you have the money in the bank does not mean you should spend it. Spend as little as you can until you have really deep product market fit, as we've talked about. Don't hire very many people. Keep the money for years if you need to until you found really incredible product market fit where you cannot handle the stuff that's happening inbound only then should you scale up your money otherwise you'll burn through all the money and you will not have a business in the end and that will suck
1: that's really valuable advice last one here what's one core value or principle that you live by or try to live by
0: there's a set that my grandfather gave to me i actually did this at a an interview say please and thank you always be on time which I'm not always great at, that's the one I want to get better at, and always do what you say. Those are some of the core philosophies of my grandfather. They're simple ones, but if I say I'm going to try to do something, I'm going to try. Just try to keep your promises and try to be a good person. My co-founder and I live very strongly on honesty, so we're just as honest as we can with our investors and our team, and we don't try to sugarcoat like everything's perfect, everything's great. We know it's not true. I know it's not true as an investor. I know it's not true as a founder.
1: Yeah, the basics remain true, keep it simple. I love those. Thank you, Ben, I really enjoyed this. If you wanna close us out with any final words of advice, anything that we missed, and how can people reach you if they wanna continue the conversation, learn more about you, I will put all those links in the show notes as well.
0: So sleep, get your eight hours of sleep, Work out. I'm not kidding, these are basics go do your workouts. Your brain will be clearer. Don't sacrifice your health for your startup. You can do both things. Take care of yourself and remember that friends and family are forever and really matter. Don't lose yourself. I can be found. Ben Parr on everything. B-E-N-P-A-R-R. Twitter, TikTok, Instagram, secret new social network. I'm probably there. Big one is benpar.com. That's my newsletter. I talk about AI every week or every other week. Some whatever I find super interesting, new trends, stuff that's happening at TED, whatever it might be. And then, luckily for any e-commerce brand, OctaneAI.com. And I have some big announcements coming in the near future. So go to BenPar.com, sign up, and you'll see some big announcements in the very near future. So I highly recommend that.
1: Amazing. Thank you so much, Ben. Really enjoyed this. Wishing you tons of success and hope to stay in touch.
0: Product market fit, everyone. Don't burn your money until you found it.
1: That's a wrap. I truly appreciate you listening and joining me on this learning adventure. If you learned at least one new thing today, please do me the quick favor of dropping a five-star rating in Apple or Spotify. I would really appreciate it. Next week, I'll be releasing a special episode, so make sure to bookmark or subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss new episodes when they're released. If you've got any feedback or just want to say hi, you can always email me at hello at pmfpod.com or reach out on LinkedIn or Twitter. And if you want to learn more about what growth can do for your startup, check out growth.co. That's growth without the O.co. As always, wishing you rockets to success on your startup journey.